again for the privilege it is to stand behind this pulpit. Uh, this, I've, I've actually forgotten how many we've done in this series, uh, majoring on the minors, looking through the minor prophets, but I know I've only got about three or four left. Okay, so that's good. Now, normally, people will go, oh yeah, uh, they'll settle down, they'll relax, and they'll go, okay, he's going to go through the background of the prophet and the book and when it was written or all that stuff. No, that'll come later. Please, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 34. Matthew 12, verse 34. Matthew 12, 34 says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That's, what, that's the introduction to Malachi. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now you would open our hearts, our eyes and our minds that we would behold the great things that are in your word for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, that's a spiritual principle, but, you know, it, it works just in the real world sort of too. I'm, I'm thinking of a situation uh, a little while ago, and, and I was standing in front of a barbecue, as you do, turning sausages. And assisting me was a young man there, also you know, turning sausages. Well, you know, the standard sort of thing blokes do, and as... Folks, do as you're standing there at a barbecue, you start chatting about things. And he wasn't long before he was telling me about a certain girl and how she would light up the room whenever she came in and how clever she was and how cheerful she was. And I thought to myself, oh, Sonny, you've got it bad. I actually said to him, you know, if you feel that way, I'd put a ring on it. And, you know, so, you know what it was? Out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth was speaking. His heart was full of his love for this young lady and he could not but help talk about it. And that's just, it's so true. And, you know, it's sort of sweet too, isn't it? But Jesus also used this in the other sense. That if your heart is full of evil and violence and corruption, it's going to come out of your mouth. Because of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now you can go back to Malachi. Right? Because Malachi... Nine times he uses the term, the words, but ye say. Nine times. But you say. 
You know, there's only 55 verses in Malachi. That means one out of every six verses contains the words, but you say. And what Malachi is getting at here is out of the abundance of their heart, their mouth was speaking. And it wasn't good. So let's have a look at what were they saying? Verse 1 of chapter 1. The burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, do you know how many times the word Malachi occurs in, in the Bible? There. That's it. That's the only place that word is it. That. We know, you know, you, you sort of go, what do we know about this guy? And the answer is, we don't even know if that's his real name because the word Malachi simply means my messenger. And some have even suggested it's not even his name. It was his title. That he was known as the messenger of God and that so people say that when he spoke up, he said, the word of the Lord to Israel from his messenger. Okay, so that, that, that's a real quick background, isn't it? <laughs> and it say, the verse 2 says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Does God really love us? Does God really love us? Do you know the first reason why we, we think God doesn't love us? Is because we're not very lovely. And you know, we're right. Why does God love us? And the answer is he, he uses this answer here of it says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau? What was going on here? Why has he introduced this story about Jacob and Esau when he's talking about, does God love us? Okay, let's, let's dig a little bit quickly into this. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 verse 8 Romans chapter 9 and verse 8 oh yeah that is they which are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted for the seed for this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Now that's back in Genesis, the prediction of the birth of Isaac, right? That he was the child of promise. And, and not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, you see that's linking it to the next generation, Isaac, Verse 11, for the children 
not being yet born, neither having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, as it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Oh yeah, that's quoting Malachi, in case you're wondering. Paul quotes Malachi here, and he's going, why does God love us? The answer is, because he chose to. Because he chose to love us. It wasn't because we were lovely, because we weren't. It wasn't because we were so good, because we weren't. It wasn't because we were special, because we weren't. There was nothing important about us, no reason for God to love us, but he chose to. So you ask the question, okay, he chose, uh, he chose to love Jacob and hate Esau. Why didn't he love Esau? Why did he choose to love Jacob? And okay, he just chose because he chose, but why didn't he love Esau? If you look over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, no need to, to turn there because Esau turned out to be a profane person who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. That's why God didn't love him. That's why God hated him because he, he threw away that which was precious and that which was important and that which was lovely and that which God had, had given to be available to him. He threw it away for a bowl of lentil stew. And today, oh, today, there are people in churches today who have thrown away and sold out the birthright of Christian teaching and thinking for a bowl of liberal Armenian pottage and they have sold what they should have held precious and God says, oh, I can't love that. But the choosing, interestingly, was done before the children had done either good or evil. While they were still in the womb, God said, I'll choose this one and I'll love him. It's also fascinating that he, he's called there by his first name, Jacob, trickster, supplanter, tripper of the heel, liar. God loved him even then. You know, one of my grandchildren is named Jacob. And, and my daughter was explaining to an older child about Jacob and what the name meant. And someone came up to this little grandson and, and, and said, and what's your new baby brother's name? And he had a think and he went, shonky. <laughs> now, it wasn't, the, but it's a pretty good summary of what Jacob means. You see, but God loved him. God loves people because he chooses to. 
And God loved Israel, even though they weren't very lovely. And God loves you, even though you're not that lovely either. Now, you might be thinking, oh, hang on, I'm not that bad. Well, let me tell you, if I talk to your family or your husband or your wife or your kids, I'll find out pretty quickly what's, why you're not that lovely. But God loves you anyhow. But then, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that God has given you the most precious thing there is, which is time to repent. God now commands men and women everywhere to repent and turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because just as Esau sought repentance later with tears and couldn't find it because it was too late. For some, it will be too late. But he commands people now to repent. What was the problem with, with Israel at this time? Well, we go down to verse 6. It says, a son honoureth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, this is God speaking, where is my honour? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts, unto you, O priests that despise my name. Here it is again. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Now. Verse 7, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, see, that's again, coming out again. Wherein have the, we pollutedly, in that ye say the table is the Lord, table of the Lord is contemptible. If ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? Now, picture the temple. The sacrifices come into the temple. They're sacrificed on the altar. Okay. There's a standard. There's a standard which is set for a sacrifice. It's really simple. Turn quickly over to the book of Leviticus. Now, the book of Leviticus is the handbook for priests. Pretty much. It's... it's you know, this is what a priest has to do. For the working of the temple, if you've got nothing else but the book of Leviticus, you could pretty well run the temple because it had the whole lot in there, what you were supposed to do. So Leviticus 1, 3. Uh, the first three verses of Leviticus, and you'll get the, get the idea pretty quickly. And the Lord called unto Moses... And spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, or even of the herd and of the flock. Okay, he's saying that's, that's, guys, you want to do a sacrifice? Fine, this is how you do it. Verse 3, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male Without blemish. Without blemish. That was the standard. Now, in Leviticus and Numbers, 
31 more times would God say that a sacrifice is to be without blemish. Now, how, how many times does, does God have to say something before it matters? Well, once. So if God says something 32 times, he's making a point. And the point is a sacrifice is to be without blemish. So what were these people doing in, in, in Malachi? What they were doing was they're saying, oh, well, we've got to get a sacrifice up to the temple. So, uh, well, have a look in the flock. And uh, uh, this one here, yeah, look, um, this one's crook. It's going to die anyhow. So we'll use it as a sacrifice. Really? Oh, this lamb's been born and a oh, poor little, poor little tight, he's blind. Yeah, we'll use him for a sacrifice. This, oh, look, well, the, the dogs got onto that, that, uh, those animals there and they're all ripped up. So we'll use them for sacrifice. And God says, I can imagine him looking at it and going, you're doing what? What part of without blemish don't you understand? It's not, you know, <laughs> I don't think they had the term in those days, but it's not rocket surgery, is it? You know, you, you, just, you, you just can't seem to get, they don't get the point. And, and Malachi makes this a really clear point here because it says in verse 8, And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or will he accept thy person? He says, right, if the governor of the state says, guys, I want a lamb each out of you as a tax and you show up with one that's diseased and dying, do you think he's going to accept it? No. He's going to say, go and get me a good one because I'm not. Uh, that's not good enough. If your human governor won't accept it, then why should God? And you think, well, and you're probably saying to yourself, good thing we're not doing sacrifices anymore. Uh, yeah, really? Would you treat your human boss where you work the way you treat God? Would you show up to work when you feel like it? Oh, I don't feel like working today. I'm not moved to go and work today. Yet we say to God, oh, I don't feel like coming to church today, so I won't. If it won't fly for your boss, why should it work with God? And yet we say, how have we done it done wrong? Out of the abundance of their heart, their mouth was speaking. In verse 10, is there even any among you who would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. The, the priest, when, when someone did come with a sacrifice, they're saying, um, there's a fee for offering this a fee yeah I've got to light the fire on the altar so there's a fee for that um, 
if we want to close the doors in the uh, in the temple so it's not so brief there's a fee for that they were charging for the work in the temple so when someone did come they were charging a fee for it and god says you've made my temple contemptible i have no pleasure in you and i will not accept an offering from your hand and he says for from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same my name shall be great among the gentiles and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen saith the lord god says you guys don't do this you guys don't do what you're supposed to i will go and find a multitude that's you lot amongst the heathen who will make my name great and he has and here you are a multitude But you have profaned it in that, you, in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit is contemptible. You also say what a weariness it is. I'm bored with this. It's so dull and boring. The worship of God had become boring to these people and you've snuffed at it. Now that's, that's a snuffed at it you've gone don't like it you ever had a kid do that something they don't like they've sniffed at it don't like that that's the way these priests were acting the priests these were the people who were supposed to be leading the people we'll be getting onto that later on but how boring it is He says, cursed be the, be the deceiver. That's a person, the deceiver he's talking about there, who's saying, oh, I'm, I'm bringing in this lamb because I don't, ha I don't have one that's suitable. And when you really do, they've got the animal they should be sacrificing, but they don't do it. They're deceiving. And sacrifice unto the Lord a corrupt thing, for I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God's name will be dreadful and awesome amongst the heathen, but his own people are refusing to do what's right. Now, you, thought, you might think, okay, you know, Malachi, you've had, a, you've had a crack at the people and the priests. Oh, he hasn't even got warmed up yet. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And now, ye priests, this commandment is for you. He makes it even more specifically. He says, this is directed clearly, absolutely, 100% at the priest because you're going to bring a curse in the next verse, a curse upon yourself for what you are doing. What are they doing that is so awful, so terrible, so horrible that God says, I am going to curse you. Drop down to verse 7 of chapter 2. 
For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests were to be the guides, the teachers, the instructors. They were to be the people that you could come to and say, I've got a problem. What do I do? And they would be able to say, thus saith the Lord, this is what you're supposed to do. And if you go, and if two people came with a problem and said, we can't sort this out, the priest was the person who should say, this is the judgment that I'm giving. They were to be not just the ceremonial leaders, they were to be the legal and intellectual um, instructors of the people. They were to teach reading and writing. They were to teach the law. In fact, that's how they were supposed to teach reading and writing, by using the scriptures. They were to be the people you could go to and you could rely on for their advice. That was their job in Israel. What had happened? But ye departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Where did this end up? Well, back over in Matthew again. Have a look in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 verse 13. Now I'm going to read just the first few words out of some of these verses. But you'll get the trend pretty quickly. Starting at verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, neither go ye in yourselves, neither suffer them that are entered into. Next verse. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides! Over in, in verse 23, woe unto you, Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe unto you, scribes, hypocrites. Okay. Uh, you think he's making a point? But what was the thing that was really wrong? What was the worst part of it? What did they do that was the that just set this whole thing off? And it was... You can see that in verse 13 of Matthew 23. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. These were supposed to be the people who brought you into the kingdom of heaven. These were the supposed to be the people who opened up the word of the law and explained it to people. Instead, they shut the door to heaven on people. Because of the way they taught and what they... That was, this is the end result of what Malachi was talking about. They didn't reach out and do what they should have. 
Verse 10, have we, we're back in Malachi again, chapter 2. Verse 10, have we not one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by proclaiming, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? You know, you, when you think about it, that's, that's just directly talking about the situation in churches sometimes. Haven't we got one father in heaven? Hasn't God created us all? And yet we do these things against each other. And he specifically calls something out. In verse 12, uh, in verse 11, rather, of chapter 2 of Malachi, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. These people, these priests of all people, were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry pagan women. Worse, sometimes they didn't bother to divorce their Jewish wife first. Because I want you to have a look in verse 15. The first phrase there, when he's talking about this, this particular sin, he said, And did not he make one? One what? Woman? Oh, you see, in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, there was Adam and Eve. Not Eve and Evie and Evita. No, there was just one. There was one woman for him. Polygamy. God says, no, I didn't, didn't, you know, how much clearer could I make it that there was one and one? And that's the way it's to be. Verse 14, yet ye say, wherefore? You say again, wherefore, what, what, what have I done wrong? Because the Lord has been a witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. It's interesting here. You know, we, we, we're sometimes fed a line. You know, the, the people who would criticize the, uh, the, the Bible and especially the Old Testament will say, oh, it's oh so patriarchal and men have everything and it, it's unfair. God's unfair on women. No, hang on a minute here. This is directed clearly at the men and saying the women are the innocent parties here and you've done the wrong thing. Funny, you know, of all people, some, someone one time when he was writing part of the Russian legal system, 
someone uh, asked Vladimir Lenin what should be the punishment for bigamy and um, his reply was hmm, punishment for bigamy two mother-in-laws <laughs> it's it's a wrong thing that these people were doing and God says I'm calling it out by my Verse 17 of this chapter, the end of this chapter 2. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in him. Or really, what you're saying is, where is the God of judgment? Now that is worthy of attention all on its own. Where is the God of judgment? If these things are so wrong, where is the God of judgment? And it's interesting that he begins to deal with that situation in a little sort of a, a parenthesis. And the answer is, he's coming. Where is the God of judgment? Well, I'll tell you, he's coming. Verse 1 of chapter 3, And behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Sound familiar? Sound, you, 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 mind, hang on, I've heard that bit before. What we're looking at, it's quoted in Mark chapter 1 verse 2, and in Luke chapter 7, this is the statement by John the Baptist, where he says, this is who I am. I am the messenger to prepare the way before me. But I want you to look really closely at something here. Yeah. Now, I don't know. Now, for some of you guys, um, English isn't your first language. Fair enough. For some of you guys, who people who are English is your first language, you're still mightn't have, have got this little bit but I want you to have a look at the word me there behold I send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me you see that little two dots after it that's a colon it indicates a break in a sentence it's not like a full stop where you start in a new sentence but it indicates a break in the sentence and that is where John the Baptist stopped in his quote when he quoted this to the people who came to him. He stopped here at this break because the second half and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. That's still coming. That's still going to happen. Hasn't happened yet. But who, who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them like gold and silver. You ever seen gold being refined? 
I've seen it. Uh, they, they occasionally do a little video of it when they do a pour at the gold mines. And just the heat. And they blast this thing with heat and it melts and it melts and it melts. Now take a little thing and they scrape off the muck from the top and then they take it off, pour it out and what comes out is pure gold. Refined. Purged of all the dross and the impurities. Even today, with all the power and skills we have in chemistry, all the scientific process, gold is still refined by fire. Because that's the best way to do it. Where is the God of judgment? He's coming. These people were going, I don't see any God of judgment around here. Well, he's told, they're told he is coming. And that he is going to deal with these problems. Verse 5 of chapter 3 says, And I will come near to you, I will come near to you to judgment, and I'll be a swift swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages the widow and the fatherless them that turn aside strangers from his right and fear not me saith the lord of hosts there's an interesting spread of crimes that are there he's going to, he says he's going to be a witness against the sorcerers that's a crime against god think about it in the current state of Australia or Victoria or whatever, there's no crime. It's not illegal to be a sorcerer. But it's a crime against God. Then, he says, and against the swearers and, and uh, sorry, uh, against the sorcerers and against the adulterers. That's a crime against the family. Then he says, and those that oppress the hireling in his wages, those who cheat people out of their proper wages. You're not going to need a fair work commission when God shows up to judge this world. And the fatherless, the widow, and those that turn aside the strangers from his right. Because God said, the stranger that is in your gates will be treated exactly the same as a citizen. If you don't, it's a crime against God. Why do they do these things? Well, the answer is found in the end of that chapter. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. They don't fear God. They don't fear him. And therefore, they feel free to lie, fear the Lord of judgment, well, it's coming. The God of judgment is coming. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances, have not kept them. Return unto me, and I'll return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you say, wherein shall we return? And he says, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, 
Wherein have we robbed thee? He says in tithes and offerings. Now, I want you to consider just for a little moment these crimes that Malachi has mentioned. He says, improper worship. Priests marrying improperly. Corruption. And now no provision of the tithes and offerings to run the temple. When was this? When did this happen? And you get a little clue back in verse 8 of chapter 1 where it says, Offer it now unto thy governor. Not to your king. Not to your prince. To your governor. So we're looking at a stage when Israel was under a governor. The temple had been rebuilt. Sacrifices were being done there. But the priesthood was corrupted. And this fits to the gap in Nehemiah. So just, just for a second, flip back to Nehemiah. Right back okay, to the end of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13 Verse 6. Nehemiah 13, 6. And he said, Nehemiah says, But in all this time was I, was not, uh, but, but in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. So what he's saying is, Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls, got everything running, and uh, the king said, uh, by the way, you said you're only going for a while. I want you back at Shushan the palace. You've got, you know, we've got business here. So he returns to the king. Fine. Then after certain days, he goes back to Jerusalem and what he finds matches what Malachi talks about. So most people would say Malachi is set about 430 BC in Jerusalem during the gap of Nehemiah's governorship. Because when he came back, he found priests had married people they shouldn't be and he had to physically go and get in people's faces to get them to realize what was being done. He, he came back and found the temple wasn't being functioning because people hadn't provided their tithes and offerings. That in the time he was away, the whole thing had fallen apart again and he had to go and correct things. So that is where Malachi fits in time time-wise. If we've said 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Then I say to you, of an absolute surety, out of the abundance of the heart, the hand gives. The, this was people who had despised the forbearance of God and had begun really, they'd even stopped giving God the leftovers. That was bad enough in chapter 1. They were sacrificing what was just not fit. Now they just stopped altogether. They hadn't brought anything in to run the temple. A cynical heart will mean an empty hand. Now some people will say, oh, this means if you promise to tithe and you do it honest, you do it absolutely, completely and accurately, God's obliged to bless you. No. Because do you know who the best tithers you've ever met were? The Pharisees. These guys would go out to their herb garden and they would count the leaves on their mint plant. And they'd say there's 130 leaves on the mint plant, so I need to pull off 13 and take them into the temple. They tithed their herbs. Did that make them righteous? No, it did not. Did that make them acceptable to God? No, it did not. Giving money will not make you acceptable to God. It may be a surprise to some people, but he who owns the cattle on the thousand hills and the wealth in every mine doesn't need your money. So why do you do it? Because he gives us the privilege of sharing in his work. It is not a duty to give. It is a privilege. Now we're going to have Annabeth come here. Right? And I can talk about Annabeth because she's not here. I've done, hey, I, I like Annabeth. She's she's really good, and and we get on really well. It's it's funny because, uh, again, she's not here, so I can say this. When she was oh, 10, 12 years old, she came up to me and 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 said to me, you know, I really like the way you do things, and I go, well, that's nice, but why? She says. Because you tell it to me straight and you don't sugarcoat it and pretend I'm just a child. So, yeah, I like Annabeth. She's great. But I want you to just imagine that we're in heaven and, and there's the people who got saved through the work that Annabeth did. And they're there and they're saying how that the translation of the scriptures meant that it opened it up to their hearts and they understood that they were a sinner and they realized they needed to get saved and they put their faith in Christ and now they're in heaven for all eternity because of that work. And you could have the privilege of, 
elbowing an angel in the ribs and saying, I helped do that. That is why giving is a privilege and not a duty. Oh, but these people, they said, what's the point? Can't be bothered. Verse 13, and your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Ye say, yeah, but ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee that ye have said it's vain to serve God? What profit is there that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully of the Lord? in front of the Lord of hosts. Now we call the proud happy, yea, that work wickedness is set up, yea, that tempt God even are delivered. What's the point? What was the, they're saying, what is the point of doing all this? And God says, the problem is, you've got the wrong time frame. And you've got the wrong perspective. You're looking at it from you're looking at it the wrong way, and you're looking at it from the wrong point of reference of history. God is coming. The Lord of judgment is coming. But there's something in the uh, in the meantime. Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. In Israel, when it was so fallen down and corrupted, there were people who had been... Now, I want you to look something about them, all right? They feared the Lord. Right? They feared the Lord. In fact, it says it twice. Then they that feared the Lord spake one to Thuella. Right? They spoke to one another about it. They talked to each other about it. They feared God and they talked to each other about it and they thought and heard it for a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought on his name they thought on his name Had you, isn't that a strange that's an unusual expression they thought on his name have a look back a little bit earlier Chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to notice something that's in that reference there. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great amongst the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great amongst the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 13 at the end. Uh, for I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. My name. Now, most of you realize that there are a lot of different names 
for for God in the in the the Bible. So which one is it? Well, the answer is none of them. It's not my name as in a particular name of God. It's for it means who he is. They thought about God, who he was. As was reflected in all those different names, that they were just thinking about God, who he is. You see, when there's thoughts, you know what comes out of thoughts? Words. They thought on his name and they spoke one to another. And out of that comes actions. They feared the Lord. They did what was right. Because thoughts, words, actions. Remember what we said right at the start? That out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And those who thought on the things of God came out of their mouth. What does God say? They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Remember that old song? Like the stars in the morning, his bright crown adorning. Now, it's interesting because this is one of the references that, that is... It's not masculine. Where it says, I make up my jewels. Do you know what that, that the image is? It's a picture of a woman standing in front of her jewelry box saying, which of these gems will I wear today when I make up my jewels? You ever, you ever, guys, you ever watched your, your wife do that? She, you know, she... Oh, this one doesn't go. This oh, this one goes with this dress, but I don't have earrings to match. Well, God is going to do that with the souls of men. He's going to say, "I'm going to wear you like a crown." He's coming. Verse chapter four. He's coming. Now. You could do a really good um, sermon on, on just chapter 4 of Malachi. And just in case you doubt that, I'll, I'll give you the outline, just the outline. Verse 1. For behold, the day cometh. That's the prediction of his coming. But unto you that fear my name, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall grow forth and grow up as calves in the stall. That's a protection of his coming. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this, saith the Lord of, uh, of hosts. That's the power of his coming. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in horror for all Israel with statutes and judgments. That's the promise of his coming. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's the prophet of his coming. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. That's the power of his coming. So yeah, there's another free sermon outline for you. The end of the, the book of Malachi. 
it leaves us with a little question though. What's this bit about Elijah? He says, I'm going to send Elijah. Okay. Have a look over. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We really need to, to understand this. Um, let's, let's actually start with John. John 1.19. John one nineteen. Okay, John one nineteen. Now, and and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who art thou?" And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And they asked him, "What then? Art thou Elias? Elijah? Are you Elijah?" And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Okay. So we say, no, I am not Elijah. But if you look over in Matthew chapter 17, now you get the two fingers going there if you can to have them both. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 